Episode 97 of the Bevan James Isle Show, the fitness behavior podcast, an interview with my mentor, Chris War. Alright, team, welcome along to episode 97 of the Bevan James. I'll show you a fortnightly podcast on the behaviors that create a lifetime love of fitness so you can get all the benefits that go alongside it. Well, I managed to get it. No, I managed to make it work. If you've listened to the show for a long time, there's kind of a person I've talked a lot about in my time who's been a big influence on my life as a mentor, as a manager of mine in the past. One of those people, when you spend time with them, you always walk away from that time just thinking, and uh, he's a very busy man, and, and he'll be the first to admit he's pretty disorganized, and I've tried to get him on a few times in the past, and it's just never worked, but I actually managed to get him on last week, so I've actually done the interview, and uh, we just sat down, and we just talked, and uh, there was no real structure to it, because I just wanted to go into it with this whole idea of how does he look at helping people, and, and this, this is Chris War. so Chris War is a guy who was my mentor. When I first started in fitness, he was my group fitness manager, and he was a very influential person in my life, in my career, but also as a person. And at the end of last, well, I think I'm even at the beginning of the last episode of the Bevan James Isles show, I talked about what he'd done in his school, and how Al Jazeera had done this documentary on him. And if you haven't listened to that, basically Al Jazeera did a documentary on his, this approach he took to schooling, and Chris talks about it in the interview where... His, the results are so phenomenal. The kids in his class, I think you're going to find out later on in today's interview, but I think they got about 96% pass rate, whereas the rest of the school only averages around 60. And they're the same kids, but in his English department, he was able to help them achieve you know, this really high level. And I was really fascinated. I really wanted to get him on the show because I just wanted to see how he approached helping these young teenagers who are often, let's be honest, the perception is they're not that motivated, you know, they're not that interested in school, but he was able to help so many kids achieve some pretty amazing things. So I'm actually not going to waste that much time today. I'm just going to get pretty much straight into it. But before I do, I just want to thank the patrons. And I've got a new patron this month, so I'm going to quickly put up their name. And the new patron of the show, her name is Sabrina Pick. And uh, I don't actually know much about Sabrina, obviously she likes the show and she's become a patron and I just want to say if you aren't a patron, you want to be a patron, go to bevanjamesos.com and it's just like Sabrina, you can support me in what I'm doing and I uh, really, really appreciate the support of people like Sabrina, Sabrina, but Sabrina, when I saw your name, because if you don't know, if you become a patron of the show, you get a nickname and Sabrina Pick, I instantly thought the number one. The number one pick. Come on. It's so obvious when it's in front of you. So Sabrina, thank you first of all just for being a patron because it really helps me do what I'm doing. And second of all, you're Rockstar and your new nickname is the number one. And that can be taken in so many ways. So Sabrina, thank you so much for that. I'm just going to quickly name a couple other patrons of the show. They include Rosa Scott and her nickname is A Deeper Level. Rosa Scott's a, a, an amazing artist. Uh, a bit of an amazing person, actually. She's just a really lovely soul that I know. We've also got Scott McMillan, Lead Belly. We've got Charlotte Bell, Music to the World. We've got Raul Branco, and it's Street Fighter. And we've got Josh Ellis, and it's Complete Grit. And Josh actually just became patron last month as well. So, again, if you want to become patron of the show, go to bevanjamesisles.com. It's very obvious once you get to my website. And it's just a way that you could support me in creating great content. So, anyway... That's uh, the patrons. Guys, I'm going to get straight into it. I talked to Chris for about an hour, so let's just get straight into the show. Here's Chris, my mentor, and hopefully you get some good insight from a man who I have a lot of respect for.
I'm uh, very, very happy. And, and for those who've listened to the show for years, I've often talked about this man in my life who influenced my life at many stages in my life and uh, has been a very good friend of mine and been a man who's um, I've admired for many reasons uh, and his ability to help people kind of grow in important ways uh, and it, both for himself but also Harry kind of connects with his world in that way and it's, his name is Chris War. Uh, so hello Chris. Hello. So maybe maybe before we kind of get rolling maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself. I know it's kind of a big question but maybe you know just so the audience gets a bit of an understanding about Chris War. Um, oh it's a it's hard to encapsulate yourself into a one small thing. And after that introduction, I feel quite humble. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Bevan and I are just mates. <laughs> Big builder. But I think maybe if I talk about it in terms of you, like um, I, I'm a New Zealander, grew up in a pretty traditional New Zealand way, but also grew up gay in New Zealand, which for me was a tough time. It wasn't a time in New Zealand when that was particularly understood, and I certainly didn't understand it. And in, in, in finding myself slightly separate from society, I think I am. It, was, it, it gave me the gift of understanding what it's like and sort of having to process through what it's like to feel like you don't fit in or belong in your own society, even in a place you recognize. And I think when I'm trying to explain myself to people, I, I think I, I think I've had an opportunity to to resolve things personally that have given me insight into how things might be tough for others. And then through the journey of working in radio and then working in the fitness industry with Bevan, and then working in, as a teacher in, in high schools, I've realised that for me, what makes me function is working with other people and helping them to recognize and perceive their own potential and it's the most exciting thing to do in the world i reckon and so when when in your own journey you know those early years were a bit of a struggle and so then but then you kind of understood some stuff about yourself but when when at what point did you start to realize what influence i want to be on the world or what i want to do with my work you know you know when did you kind of start to realize this is what i want to do with my time i think um i think i again i just referring back to my own personal journey, I experienced quite early in my life, alongside this sense of alienation, quite a lot of people who acted with great kindness towards me. And I think I just learned from them. You know, I, I, I understood and, and saw within myself the, the changes that could come about in someone just due to the kindness and the actions of others. So I think it's a gradual process. But I think also when I, 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 I had a great establishing experience working in student radio in New Zealand, which is a community radio organization. It's, a, it's an organization run largely by its volunteers. And it, it, it taught me about how strong, passionate people who are committed to, a, to something that they believe in can be in terms of a force in the world. And how actually the main thing that, and student radio did teach me this, that the main thing that a person should do if they want to affect change is to act congruently with the things they believe in. So, 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 so to really address ourselves first and to act in, uh, consistently with the things we believe in, which is incredibly hard to do in reality. It's, mm. it's very easy to kind of claim uh, high ideals and aspirations in, in life. It's quite difficult to then also live by them and act, uh, act according to those things in all aspects of your life. And so I think in student radio, we tried to do that. We were, we, we and they still are organizations who passionately believe in localism and they believe in the talent and the expertise of New Zealanders. And they believe that the best way of 
of strengthening that is by engaging with it and promoting it and, and relying on it as a source of the material for the programming and to trust that that's going to lead to their success. And it has. And I think that's, I experienced that really early. And then when we, and then working in the fitness industry was such an opportunity to demonstrate, to, to learn how even if you're flawed yourself, even if you're imperfect in your own right, you can still have enormously positive impact, impact on others by presenting to them and being comfortable with the idea that people will project their ideals onto you and to present them something that, 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 that is positive about the choices they're making. So in our, in our experience, we're talking about working with young, with, with people, sorry, all sorts of people from all walks of life in fitness, group fitness experiences, sharing experiences together and, and, and in our own fallible ways, demonstrating the positive impact it can have. And I think people just, they learn by observing and watching others and being inspired by the journeys that others take. And if we do that with humility, I think it can be very powerful and very influential without actually necessarily having to be big in our own right, nor having to be perfect. And so I think that that that, that triggered that sense that it is actually possible as an individual to have a really positive impact on others, even on like quite a large scale in terms of large numbers of people, without necessarily having to be a major influencer. It's more in terms of the way that you might model. And then working in, then when I came to teaching, which seemed to be a natural continuation, I think I gained an understanding that... Um, well, really, the best time to engage with people in terms of their personal growth is when they're young. And I find it enormously satisfying. And I think quite powerful to recognize how influential adults are on young people. And if you take that responsibility seriously, if you care about the, the engagement you have with young people, you really can significantly positively influence young people simply by providing them with with a, 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 the idea of what's possible in their lives and what they're capable of. They're very open to hearing what they're capable of as much as they are open to hearing what is wrong with them if you're going to criticize them. They're very sensitive to what they hear about themselves because they're still forming their ideas about themselves. So all that stuff that applies to us as adults, I think applies even with more amplification to younger people. That's how I've felt anyway. Mm, and, and, but I think one thing that, you know, you talk about this kind of as adults, we have this opportunity, but I think for a lot of adults, it's almost like we want to show them how to live life. You know what I mean? It's one of the problems is that we feel we're a bit more ahead of the game. We know the experience that they're going to have. And so we're not necessarily trying to guide them. We're almost trying to, or we are trying to guide them in a certain way. So what would be the way that you would approach that that maybe is different to that? I think well, that's interesting. I think one thing is that I think, and it's not un, it's not un, it's very understandable that we might want to, you know, ensure that young people don't make mistakes we have made. But I think that's a shortcut. Actually, you only get to wisdom through having made mistakes, so you can't insulate them from that really. Not if you want them to actually learn. Um, I think I think the the thing that I it's some kind of it's been gifted to me somehow, and I don't know why it came about, but I don't actually think that young people are stupid like a lot of adults do. <laughs> I'm not quite sure, but it's a great gift as a teacher to realize that, in fact, you know, when you look at it empirically, their, their brains are working much better than mine. <laughs> so functionally, they're actually much better off than I am. They just know less. They've experienced less. And so all I try to do when working with young people is actually acknowledge their strengths and recognize their limitations. Limitations are true for all of us. Mm. Where we, where, as older people, we may have calcified. In their case, they may be 
uh, callow. They may be less experienced. They may have less perspective to bring to things that they're doing. But in terms of capacity, it's all there. One of the most exciting things about young people is the, the sense that they carry this enormous potential. It's why it's why people love young people, isn't it? And it's why we we place our hopes in young people. But I think the main thing for us to do, if we want them to, if we want young people to develop into the world well, is to um, is to give them opportunities to. Uh, make mistakes, to feel empowered in their own right and to learn from the experiences they're having themselves, provide them with a framework within which they can make choices and learn as opposed to trying to teach them lessons because mm-hmm. they'll learn their own lessons and they'll, they'll learn about themselves much more swiftly and much more effectively through their own experiences than they will by having to just be subject to the lessons that we have to teach them. Instead, what I think we should do is bring to them our encouragement and our knowledge and experience as a tool for them to use as opposed to something they have to learn from and, and, also, and also stand back a lot of the time and just enjoy them exploring their lives as opposed to kind of having to lead them through the processes all the time. You, you become an important fun, useful tool to them rather than someone they have to constantly follow. Mm. So, so let's let's touch on what you have been. You know, with the, on my last episode, I talked about the documentary that Al Jazeera did on you, uh, and maybe 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 you could give us a better understanding. So, you went to the UK, started teaching there, and you became a head of department, and you had kind of a vision, I suppose, or or an idea of what you were trying to work towards. What, and what was that when that started out? Well, I think one of the things that has to be said is that what we did there was partly a reaction to the circumstances. In, in the UK, they have a system that's very, very strongly focused on students' performance and examinations. Mm. And they have a system that's very, very adherent to this idea of, of hierarchies as learners, students being high ability and low ability. Mm. And they're classified as those things all the way through the education system. So they become labelled by these terms and they perceive themselves that way. And we... Don't we just philosophically disagreed as a group of people working as teachers? We disagreed with the notion that the fundamental premise that people have different ability to the extent that you could classify them in groups and say this group is able and this group is not. Mm. What we what we do know is that everybody's different and everyone has different capacities within them, but they're un discovered in young people. That's the worst time ever to be able to make a predetermination of what they're capable of. Who can say what these young people are going to be able to do or achieve? So for us, it was about challenging the system we were in in order to be able to pursue what we believe philosophically was 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 true, which is that our job as teachers was to enable young people not to classify them and that their achievement in their exams was not to, not meant to be the product of their work, their time at school. It was just a signal that they'd achieved something during their time at school. The product of their time at school was meant to be their future, you know, leaving school equipped to embrace the world and, 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 and take advantage of the opportunities that exist in the world and to offer as much of themselves as they can to the world. And so that much broader, much more kind of wholehearted objective needed, to, we needed to change the system in order to make those objectives the focus of our work. So one of our ways to it was it was an exercise some to some extent in uh, uh, what do they call it these days? Um, there is a term. <laughs> I'll, I'll, it'll come to me. <laughs> but essentially disrupting how education works and saying that okay, let's make it so that students choose their teachers. 
that assessments are set up as as as, as achievements rather than something that, that that the students are branded by, and and remove all of the kind of adult control out of that side of the process. So in our in our department, it's a small department in a, in a school in London the students would select who was going to teach them each year and they would have 100% control over who their teacher would be. Teachers would then have to, at the beginning of each year, present their work to the students and, 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 and promote why it is that the students might want to choose them and they'd have to do it honestly because then they would be held accountable to that by the students and their families. And then um, it didn't mean that the teachers were deprofessionalised. In fact, it isn't actually a, a teacher's professional role to decide who should be in their class any more than it's an aerobics instructor's job to decide who should attend their classes mm. or any more than it's a radio station's job to decide who should listen. It's about providing the best possible product mm. that you think will best meet the needs of the people who are coming and to consistently work on that product so that it's as good as it can be and therefore as, as effective and therefore attractive to the customer, which is essentially what the students became. Mm. A lot of people have trouble with the sort of idea of that because they think of it as commodification of, ex, of, of education, and I need to make it clear that all students did our subject, English, anyway. This mm. was just a case of how they learned. And that allowed the teachers to therefore work. It, 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 it didn't deprofessionalize. It actually professionalized the teachers because they were then making choices about their programs of learning that were focused on the outcomes for young people, not what their leader told them they should do, not this curriculum's dictates about what subject, what book, what content should happen, but actually what was going to be the, the best course that was going to meet their customers' needs the best, the student that they teach. And, and what it turned into is a much more democratic, much more collaborative experience where the students had meaningful choices to make. You, 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 when you, when you, and our belief was, and it was proven to be true, that if students young people, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds are allowed to make choices that are significant to them, that they'll take the choice seriously. And that's exactly what happened. They, they, they chose with a lot of gravity. They took time over their choices. They sometimes made poor choices and had to learn from that and make new choices in the future. But there were all these beautiful artifacts that came through, like, for example, and we remember, you'll remember this from, or know this from group fitness, is Sometimes there's a real bond between some people and an instructor. An instructor means a lot in that person's life. And they, their life is often potentially even changed by just being in that instructor's class week after week. And, and teaching it can be the same. I, I have students who I've taught for five or six years in, in succession in secondary school because they've repeatedly chosen me as their teacher. And that's because the relationship between us is powerful and it works. And the students are able to keep maintaining that relationship through their school years. It becomes very, very strong over time. And they become very successful, of course, because as a teacher, you get to know them very well and you get to, you get to understand their needs very well. And equally, where there's not a good relationship or where the, where the style of work doesn't function well to the student, the student's able to make the choice to go elsewhere. And equally as many did that too. Mm. And that's just as good. It's not It's not about me and my ego. It's not about me having the most numbers of people in my classes. Mm. It's just about meeting their needs the best. And um, it was – it's it's a fairly logical process. But the interesting thing was that it was so countercultural in the UK that it was seen to be radical. I don't think it, – it doesn't – 
feel radical to me, but people perceived it as such, and that's why I got some attention. The thing I like, about, like there's so many aspects to like about it, but one of the things I really like it for the adults involved is, is often we get to the adult stage of our lives and we kind of just get caught up in the day-to-day grind, and I imagine what you created made me have to pull my socks up and made me have to kind of excel in my job and kind of challenge myself as, you know, someone who's trying to influence or, or you know, help these kids move forward. Um, you know, like, I imagine they, your teachers and your team probably were just so s- kind of stimulated by the experience of what they had to go through within themselves because there's so much growth. Like, basically, you were asking the whole world to grow, weren't you? Yeah, well, everyone certainly had to grow. And it had to be, you know, you've got to give credit to the teachers. They come from a culture where they don't cede power that way. Mm. That's sort of that's a sort of handing power to students thing that doesn't happen in mm. a school system. And so and and in, in doing that, they were they were putting them, they were making themselves vulnerable. They were they were opening themselves up to the possibility that they wouldn't get chosen. Yeah. I mean, I'll go back I'll go back to group fitness. I mean, uh, we've all had that experience where you stand in front of a class of one. (laughs) (laughs) Is it me? (laughs) This was probably something to do with me. (laughs) 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 But the the thing about it is that um, the questions that that, then that did happen. You know, we had, there were times when teachers didn't get chosen by many students and sometimes none. And in that process, we had to evaluate what it was that was not, was, was, was not making our work attractive to the students. And the questions are really hard to ask mm. and they were very, it, it requires a lot of confidence, I think, to be able to put yourself in that position and then to navigate through. But I, but, and therefore it also has to be managed well. You can't yeah. just, yeah. people in a situation like yeah. that and then tell them survive it yeah i think you actually have to care for everybody through the process so there is a role for the people who are doing these things to people but individually they're the ones that go on the journey and the the thing that came that we discovered through our experience with that is that young people were choosing on the basis of authenticity so uh, you could be anything as long as you were what real. you were yeah And and young people are really sensitive to that sort of thing. So if you're trying to present something that's insincere, if you're fake in front of those people, they know you. They 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 spend years in your presence. If they 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 they're repelled by that insincerity. And 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 instead, what we had was other teachers who who maybe weren't the sort of teacher you would imagine would be the popular teacher. You know, you have that image in your head of the one that's kind of young and and right on and that's yeah. sort of teacher that all students would want to have. Interestingly enough, it wasn't that kind of style of teaching that was the most attractive to the students when it was actually their choice. Oh, wow. And so once they were actually given the choice, they often we had teachers in the department who who were very well established. I mean teaching in the school for 25, 30 years were quite quite traditional in their methods. We're certainly not in any way interested in pandering to the students in terms of, you know, content or their own personal style. They were they were they were traditionalists and they they, they believed in that. They were empowered equally to present that to the students as an option. And of course there were plenty of students who wanted to learn in that environment who were secure but who felt secure about that and chose it elected to work in that way so they were successful they were they, they were the ones that everyone on externally would imagine students wouldn't choose and of course students chose them it was actually the younger newer teachers who were trying to kind of promote a, a, what a package that they imagined the students would want that ended up falling 
awry because the students detected the insincerity of it and they didn't trust it and that led them to feel less secure about the learning they were going to get and they chose other courses so the teachers what really had to learn was to be more comfortable with themselves and to be more authentic or more real in the classroom and by by being whatever they were they then would find their own constituency as we all do when we are ourselves so for me personally you can see the kind of arc that that led that represented in terms of my own life, like that, that kind of difficulty with learning to be myself and finding a place for myself in society and then discovering that in my professional realm, that, that, that the, way, the fact that I had fought for and learnt to be truthful about who I was in all ways actually ended up being this, uh, an underlying source of my success and effectiveness in a classroom as a teacher. Is that, that That's one of the things that made that, that I was good at and therefore made me attractive to students and therefore made me effective with them because they felt secure, mm. not because I was a particular thing, just that I was what I said I was, mm. just the thing I, I was authentically what they thought, what, what I presented myself to be. And I think these days, as much more than ever, we need that from each other. There's a lot of insincerity going on, mm. a lot of misrepresentation and I think that's actually playing well into the hands of people who are comfortable in their own skin because we are um, able to reassure people by just being what we say you know there's a simplicity and a clarity to that that is quite that is quite calming and positive and affirming to others as well. So, so because you know, to me, one of the biggest lessons you taught me, you know, you didn't sit down and teach me it, but it was is this kind of the stuff you're talking about? Was this kind of honesty of self is kind of the goal? You know, like is kind of what you should be being in this world. And uh, and the thing I've learned by jumping on board with that is that then you open up the world to honesty with the others. You know, like if you if you are that person, it's amazing how many people feel free around you if you know what I mean yeah. and then you help to open them up so I suppose if for those who you know listen to someone like you and go wow I'd love to have that what would you suggest is what's the pathway to work towards that I think that, that I mean I, I I'm always going to say the first and hardest part is to be honest with yourself mm. I mean just face the difficult truths about yourself and and become okay about them you can't always like all this stuff about yourself we're not we're not perfect. Hmm. There's lots. Yeah, you know, we carry around lots of baggage, and it's, it's pretty pretty reasonable that that should be true. And it's just about being okay with it instead of uh, having to constantly fight against it. Hmm. And that 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 being genuinely self-accepting really is quite a good starting point to being able to be positive and useful to other people. Mm. I think it is important. Um, I remember when we we used to work together in the in the fitness industry, we used to talk about the on stage persona of an instructor quite a lot and the importance of I think you know people would come to a aerobics class to get fit but they would also come there to be inspired and they'd come there and they'd often feel a sense of admiration for the instructor who was often another person in a similar category to them but who had achieved this kind of level of fitness or this level of competence that that was quite impressive or ad admirable but sometimes the, the instructors themselves were still struggling in themselves with their own kind of confidence. And sometimes they thought, therefore would not sort of accept the um, admiration that the participants had for them. They'd sort of, you know, someone that they wouldn't, they wouldn't acknowledge that they looked good. They wouldn't 
they wouldn't they wouldn't um, suggest that they were quite fit. Instead, they were always talking about their imperfections, as we mm. all often are. And they would think that was the appropriate thing to do. And I always felt that was so wrong because I think it reinforces the sort of negative self-image stuff that a lot of us carry. And if the instructor on the stage is saying that they're unfit, then what does that say about me? And that whole kind of cycle is so unhelpful to all, all of us. I think we... I think we uh, often the behavior of others provides us with a license to do it ourselves. And I think mm. it works in all directions. So if people are racist, it, it provides a license for others to express racist ideas or to express prejudices. But if people, if people are caring and considerate and, and show the, 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 a sense of, of self-awareness and and, and it's self-acceptance, then that also provides other people with a license to feel like that about themselves and each other. So I think that's how we influence is just by working on ourselves in those ways mm. and, and being, we all do, we are, all are fallible. So also just being modest about it, accepting it, but being modest about it. And those are things, those are qualities that we can all have. I was, I was thinking about you and your kind of own journey in, in life and the fact that I see you now, but I also see the kind of 18-year-old boy that I saw when I first met you. Yeah. And in so many ways, you're the same person. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I know you've yeah. been on a significant journey in your own life, but really, you're that same guy with that wonderful... I mean, the things that we see in each other are often the positive things, mm -hmm. things we don't necessarily recognize in ourselves. So... I've always seen you this way. I think it's tremendous that you're the happy, successful man you are now, but it was always in you. Mm. And, the, and the qualities that you have that are attractive and wonderful are the qualities that um, have always been there. You haven't had to make yourself that way. That is just you. It's essentially you. And we all have that. But there are often things that you might sometimes in yourself see as imperfections, yet these are the things we love about you. Mm. And that's the other thing that I think we need to learn about ourselves is that it's often our and what we might call our imperfections that are the things that are us. <laughs> they actually make us who we are. Mm. And we may struggle all our lives with these things, but in reality, they're often what we're loved for. Mm. They're, and they're often the things we love in each other, is the, is the, is the things that mark us out as different. Mm. And, the, and often we do struggle with. And so... We have to recognize we're going to struggle with them, but we just have to allow ourselves to be loved for those things as well instead of constantly trying to eliminate them because we never will. <laughs> we're always going to be these well, well, And it's for a lot of people, it's the, the fear of rejection is the reason they don't actually bring it out. But if they were to maybe explore and take a risk, you know, like they have the courage to show that side of themselves, you, I think you probably discovered that you are more loved, as you say, you know, like it is... You know, like it's you're you're not That's revealing right. the real you to the world, and so that you, you know you might not be. Next, but if you gave your real you, well, then maybe maybe yeah. you would be loved. Well, that's the classical paradox, isn't it? That mm. we're loved for our imperfections, and of course, our imperfections are the things we're least likely to want to reveal to each other. But again, of course, I mean, what's one of the more uh, adorable things in a person than them being vulnerable? And so, mm. you know, like uh, like like learning in a in a classroom in a school is a lot about vulnerability. I mean, to 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 be a student in a classroom where it's a very public space and you're doing all your learning and your experimentation in public and there's a lot of room for humiliation or for feeling for feeling ashamed of, of yourself or for failing and for that failure to feel as if it's a devastating experience. And so one of the things that we have to do to create an environment where that's not the case, where, where failing becomes understood and accepted is 
is to acknowledge our own fallibility, is to mm. is to be somewhat vulnerable in our own right as adults, and to and I, mean, I don't mean pretend vulnerability. I mean actually recognize our own vulnerabilities and and kind of take the first step and demonstrate that it's okay to take those kinds of risks, mm. and then that's very empowering for other people, and that's that's a state in which other people will then grow as well because there's a security in that, a shared experience of vulnerability. As adults, we do have more experience. We do have wisdom. We have knowledge as well and things that we are obliged to pass on to young people. And also we have boundaries and rules that we have to apply for their well-being and security. Those are all true, but that doesn't mean that we can't also sometimes be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that they they need us to always be perfect in front of them. But that is it's not actually entirely useful for them to only see us as perfect mm -hmm. or or, or, or as a role model. Sometimes role modeling is, is about role modeling our humanity rather than role modeling the excellent qualities we want them to adopt mm. because that way allows them a little bit of scope to fail too and therefore also learn because essentially all our learning happens through failing experiences, the, the things we're always spending our time avoiding are the things that we're going to learn from. <laughs> With regards to just going back to kind of the thing you created, uh, well, you know, that you know, I know you wouldn't take ownership for it in that way, but um, with rejection for from parents, was that something you experienced? And then the system outside of your school, like, because, you know, like it's I'm often people like you who try to do something ambitious that's maybe not on the normal pathway, you get kind of two things of it's, it will never happen in my world, um, that kind of, you know, that approach and or this is just too much change I'm afraid you know so and maybe did you get that from parents in your world and if so what was how did you approach that well it's interesting it, it, I've always felt as a teacher that one of my greatest allies is going to be the parents because the parents have and have have an incredibly strong sort of commitment to the young person just like I do and so we're on the same side of the argument and mm -hmm. that's always turned out to be true so for example if you talk about this program and it's just one aspect of a whole lot of different strategies we we're using but to focus on this student choosing their teacher aspect um, what we're also saying is that the parents get to choose the teacher now there's masses of educational research that says the most significant factor that it will influence a student's learning outcomes as the teacher. Now, we kind of ignore that, and then we look at all things like homework and how many people are in the classroom, and because they're all things that kind of can be changed, whereas actually mm. they kind of always behave as if the teacher can't be changed. Yeah. So what we said is, well, actually the most influential component of this is the teacher. Let's see if you can have some control over that. So what we were saying to parents is, okay, we think this is one of the most important factors in your, in your child's learning. So why don't you have some control over it? And so we're actually handing control to parents. Not many parents resist that idea mm. because essentially they're getting to make a choice that is important and they know matters to the, to the success of their son or daughter. And so therefore that was not hard. They were, they were always very strongly on board with it. But we also used lots of methods of transparency. We invited parents to come in and watch us teach. We invited them to review our work. We, invite, we, we provided lots of mechanisms by which they could have give us feedback and input into the programs of learning we were developing so that when it came to the point where they had a choice, we were providing them with options that made sense to them and that met their needs. And so there was a lot of engagement with parents. So parents were great. And the parents ended up ultimately making this happen because it was their support for it that overcame the obstacles that did occur, which occurred within the school and educational infrastructure. There's no rules against what we were doing. 
but this, the, the administrators and senior leaders in the school systems are so risk-averse that this was pretty scary for them. And they, they, they didn't like it philosophically because they didn't like surrendering control. They didn't like it pedagogically because they felt that it was placing decisions into the hands of young people who weren't competent to make those decisions. And they, it also went against the British idea that the student that students should be segregated by ability because it's, it's, it undermined that altogether. And then it also... And then the fact that the teachers had so much control over what they taught also it essentially placed way too much control in the hands of the people who, the students and the teachers, who, mm. who in the British education system are essentially the ones who have the least amount of control normally. Mm. And that kind of inversion of the, of, of, of the kind of control systems left people feeling quite uh, – uh, resistant to it, but ultimately, what led to its success was a, was the success of the young people in the exams. Yeah, which never focusing on. Yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of like you know, go back to group fitness or radio. You, you you need a good audience in radio. You need big classes in group fitness. But if you focus on the audience and the class, you don't get there. Yeah. You have to on the experience, you know what I mean, and then the audience and the and the class comes, and so in terms of the like the kids were so engaged in their learning and so positive about it, the teachers were loving what they were doing so much. It wasn't really possible for it not to succeed, and in the end, the the results drove the license for us to continue and expand the program because they could see that it was getting outcomes. I mean, essentially, we ended up in a situation where the average pass rate in the school for our students was around sixty percent. And that, that that same group of students' pass rate in English was ninety three percent, and so there's enormous difference between how they were doing in our subject and the other subjects in the school. And ours is meant to be harder English for boys, but the um, in the end, it, it, that also created a few problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want to be exposed to our weakness for some people, do they? And so that you know, you, that's an issue, isn't it? It create. I mean, it, it just nobody has to say anything about that statistic, really, for it to, for it to be obvious about why that became problematic. <laughs> but it's kind of sad, isn't it? That that's a, that your success yeah. is a problem. You know, like, I've created something that's really like our job is to help these kids, and it's really sad that if your success means we have to stop you because you're being successful. Like, how bad is that? But I think that touches on what happens. I think that's a what, quite a useful thing to explore. People are hostile towards successful outcomes mm. because it does feel threatening to them, mm. and they need to and they need to be able to negotiate a relationship with that thing. So they either dismiss it, or they make an excuse as to why it can't be possible for them that they can that that feels justifiable to them, or they are hostile to it. You know, mm. or they, or they find a philosophical reason to resist it. And sometimes those things are very good because that kind of critical feedback is very useful. It's very good to embrace that if you are being criticised in that way because I think it's very helpful to have to have answers to those questions and to embrace that concern. But I think if we look at the world, the and 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 creating influence in the world, if you can't, if it, my 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 failure in that process was not bringing enough people along and oh, okay. so creating that and yeah. and and I and I definitely did it and that, that that's another after effect of my sort of sense of isolation as a young person one of my one of my tendencies is to isolate myself into an environment where I have control and then exercise all my influence inside that environment and you can see what happened there by doing that 
within the organization I was working in, I, we were successful as a, as a unit within that environment, but mm. we also ended up creating too much tension with the wider group who really, by rights, should have been coming along with us, should have, should have, should have been joining us in the, process, in the project, as opposed to seeing it as a kind of something to feel threatened by. And if we're threatening people, I don't think we can always just say you're feeling threatened because that's your problem. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I yeah. think I think you have to say what is it about the way that I'm operating that makes people feel threatened, and I and I think that's a question I'm open to asking myself. And so, what would, and I, what would you say? Would you know, reflecting back, what would you change to make that more of an open process? I think I think it's to do with the fact that I. I think I ran in, in that particular circumstance. I think I it, it, it was I ran the exercise in too much of an isolated way, well, not in secrecy, mm. but as, as a separate ex- exercise. And by separating it off from what everyone else was doing, I think I created the conditions for it to be rejected by other people, yeah. and for it to be threatening to others. And I think that that was a defensive mechanism. And I think sometimes that you know I, I justified it at the time on the basis that it was something that we wanted to experiment with and that if it was successful that we could have expanded from there and to some extent it had there were other departments in the school who were beginning to take on some of the ideas but I think it was less successfully done in that respect because I didn't I think the main people I isolated myself from in that circumstance were the the senior members of the school infrastructure and Mm. so there's a lesson you know don't I alienate your bosses. <laughs> is, that, is that wise advice? Yeah. <laughs> I think you know that one. But I mean, that's a you know, like 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 again, I because it would be so easy to to see that you know that statistic that I quoted and to and to dismiss everyone else. But mm. really, I think we need to look at ourselves in situations like that and mm. understand what it is prevented it from going on. In a more holistically positive way, but there's also time for that as well. Maybe it's a time frame thing. Now that it's been seen, and now there's a documentary about it, perhaps people will have more confidence in it and feel less threatened by it as well. Do you do you, do you feel you, you were saying before? There's other kind of things you did to build what you build. What are some of the other things that you kind of approaches that you attach to this experience? Well, I, some of them some of them will sound um like some of it's about sort of teaching and learning but one of them I guess that's fairly easy to comprehend outside of the, the, the sort of internal conversations about teaching is we set we revised the way that students were assessed as well by applying a very simple system that I learned when I was a child where every achievement that the student students made in our department was awarded a badge okay. <laughs> instead yeah. of marks and grades and we eliminated all marks and grades and we just made badges for everything that we thought was valuable so that they would do things like perform a poem by heart in front of the class and they'd get the poetry by heart badge wham <laughs> and then that was it they'd done it they could keep it and they would move on to something else and so by setting up a system like that what we were doing was taking again the kind of you know how the teachers have so much authority over the students' achievement. They sort of set tests and they mark and evaluate and compare. Think about something like badges. It's a, it's a standard. Anyone, anyone can achieve it given enough work. So you, they, they can try it as many times as they like. So what we're trying to do there is create a system where how to achieve was really clear to everyone. There was no secret. There was no, there was no kind of special knowledge. This is just how you do it. You perform the poem in front of your class and you get the badge. 
if parents can understand that as well as teachers as well as students once you've done it you keep it forever so it's durable so you've achieved something worthwhile that meaningful that you can carry always i mm. still know i'm I still remember the badges I got when I was a scout. And I know I can prove I can do that stuff. It's in me. And so we were trying to give the kids a sense that they were acquiring skills as they went along and things that they could carry forward and that were durable, not just for the purposes of passing a test, but actually important in the world. And then um, they were also contestable because we promoted what it was that you would have to do to pass that thing. And because it was a simple achieve and not achieve, that meant that it was very clear to everyone what was needed to be done. Mm. And they, they could go and try harder with their family or rewrite something or whatever was required. They could they could work on it independently because there was clarity about what was needed. And then also that one about they could make as many attempts as they want. So instead of having one chance to pass the exam and then being a failure if they don't, they became they were in a situation where it was legitimate to keep attempting something. And so your students would become much more resilient. Like failure wasn't anymore a negative thing. It was simply an experience to learn from. You'd attempt something, you'd find out what it was that you missed in order to not meet, meet the criteria and you'd try again. And that kind of sense that they, they, they'd call it, they, they, they said it was kind of, you, you couldn't flop because there was always a another chance. And so mm. that, that sense that instead, because the system had created over there, and to some extent in New Zealand as well, is this idea that there's a sort of really serious final assessment that determines your ability and that 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 there's a lot of pressure and a lot of uh, a lot of weight placed on this single assessment. Whereas in reality, the the life is a series of exercises and trying to do things and trying again and again. I think about uh, um, my kind of uh, my being a, watching you as you were developing a, as a um, triathlete, and how that is such an exa- clear example of multiple efforts, having to keep trying and learning from each effort, and having to go through the emotional as well as the practical and physical changes you have to make in order to be successful, and that that's not something that you can sort of just teach in one exercise and then test everybody equally and then say this person's good and this is not because all success is so multifactorial mm. and people have in themselves what it is that they need to do to get themselves across the line like for you and I to do a similar thing would take quite a different process because of the way we approach things and, mm. and each of our ways is fine mm. and quite and, and we can both be quite successful using our methods, but we wouldn't be working very well using each other's. <laughs> so help young people to learn how to succeed in their own terms as well. You know, some people will try and do everything up front and have it perfect and present it that way. Others will have a real comfort with multiple attempts, and that's their business. They can learn. So that, that whole system allowed that system. Of, so, for example, in English in our department in, in the UK, kids could pick any course teachers could create any course where the badges were universal. So, so they may be performing a different poem, but they still have to perform a poem. And, and, and so there's a sense that there's sort of something universal that sat behind all of our systems. But again, it was just about making everything transparent. It's making it available for critique. Making, we published everything online. We made sure that people all could have access to the decision-making and the criteria. And again, it's just about essentially when you're working in an educational or a learning or a growth environment, is actually keeping people included in the process as opposed to kind of presenting yourself as an expert who's holding on to all the knowledge. I, I, I disagree with that. I, I think we have our expertise, but I think that the process of, of education is sharing expertise and, 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 it's a, and, and there's no value really to 
turning it into something that you you keep secret or that 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 somehow is presented as being some kind of specialist secret knowledge everything is fairly universal and it's just about making sense of it together really Mm. you know for myself I, i left school as one of those kids with the label of I'm going to suck, you know, at education for the rest of my life. And and then luckily I had some things that made me shift towards growth and, you know, and, and I'm a different person because of yeah, that. But effective at convincing you that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, and I imagine <laughs> lots of people listening to this, you know, like I, I, I left school. I remember um, we made a tape with our friends one night when we were drunk and it was kind of, what will you be five years from now? And and my answer was, well, I'll kind of be nothing, you know, and and it was, it was like, I'll be cheating on my partner, I'll be drunk, and I'll kind of be in the same place. And, you know, and that was yeah. the scarring of that kind of labelling. Um, luckily for me, I, I found a way through that. But, you know, I imagine some people listening to that, you know, are adults and probably can identify with that kind of limit that was put on them from school. What would be the things yeah. that you would say how to move through that as an adult? Well, I do think that, I mean, I think that if I look at, for the two of us, for us to have transcended the things that limited us when we were younger, we have needed other people. Mm. I don't think we did this on our own. Yeah. So I think one thing to suggest is that to is to seek people and to and to and to um, be interested in engaging with people who you think have a good influence on you. I think surrounding yourself or at least engaging with some people who who you admire, who you trust. Who, who, who are interested in you and care about you or who generally in life are making good decisions for themselves that you can see clearly are, are healthy and positive. Engaging and being around and present with those people is a good thing, even if it is listening to them on the radio like I do because I'm constantly listening to people who I am interested in mm. or it, even if you can have them in your own personal life even better. But it's that thing about, about first it's about opening yourself up to positive influences. I think all people can do that and mm. there are lots of sources for that. It doesn't have, They don't have to be in your personal life. I think the second thing is, um, is, is I think examining what it is that is limiting you. I think you and I, in order to have reached the kind of points of fulfillment we've reached in our lives have also have learned about what it is that we've that that have held us back we understand the things that hold us back to some extent Mm -hmm. and even though they may still hold us back at times they're um they're known to us and we can work well with them and i think Mm -hmm. that's something that all of us can do is kind of be honest about the stuff that holds us back and and to live well with it i i um because even now if we sat two of us down side by side externally people might think you've got better abs, but they wouldn't say that I'm more intelligent than you. Do you know what I mean? And so there's this thing that you would carry because I doubt you'd be able to comfortably admit that you think you have the same level of intelligence than I do. Mm. And the reason that you might not is simply what you were taught for many years at school about yourself. Mm. School kept telling you this thing at a very formative stage in your life. And and in that time – you, you you can't really not believe it. They are the authority, mm. and so um, and that that does have lifelong effects. And and even though there's nothing about you that it, that provides evidence of that anymore, your self belief is still going to be always affected by that. It's mm. all and, and and all 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 you end up having to do with that is just kind of go, that's there, but it's history. That's mm. my past. That's that's I, I've lived through that, and it, it gives me a certain perspective on life that is different to others, and I and I, I'm grateful for that. But I'll always have to work with it as well. And I think if all of us do that and as, let, as identify and understand our own self-imposed limitations, 
plus the limitations the world places on us, and then just look at people who have transcended those things and learn from them. That's that's all we can all do, I think. Hmm. You, you seem to always have had an amazing ability to identify the thing that would motivate individuals. You know, like I think of our team of, of instructors when you first came on as a manager, and, um, you know, you, you seem to know what carrot and maybe it's really obvious, but I, I don't. I, you know, a good manager is a, is a is a bit of a rare thing, really. Um, and yeah. I I really yeah. admired your management skills, and, and you worked really well for me. Um, but you you knew, you know, that I was different to Jeff, and Jeff was different, and so on and so on. You know, you just seem yeah. to have this really good ability to kind of go, here's the spark that's going to spark this person. Like for me, it was I think it was, I think it was probably just putting a challenge in front of this boy. Um, but you yeah. know, how do you? Why do you think you have that? And, and if so, what is that? And give them an audience. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> but, um, but, well, I think, I think one of the things that I think might come back to that thing that I, first of all, I just don't assume that I already know. Because I, I, I think I tended to suffer one earlier on in life from people making assumptions about me. They'd look at me and they'd assume a whole lot of things about me, which in my case didn't feel true. So mm-hmm. I used to struggle but feeling as if I wasn't really seen. And, and I think I probably made a bit of a commitment to myself at that point to not make those assumptions about others. So instead of probably thinking I know what motivates you, Bevan, I've asked you many times. Mm. I've been interested to find out what motivates you. And then once I hear it, I believe it and I act on what you tell me. And so you know, I think if anything, it's just about listening to what people say is important to them and and, and, and being faithful to that. And, and taking it taking it seriously, and I, I certainly do the same thing with young people. I don't assume I know what they need to hear from me. I ask them what they need to hear from me, and that makes a huge difference because they may not always have an answer, but it's an interesting question for them, and it starts a conversation that leads to a really positive outcome in the end. Mm-hmm. And I learn about them through their ability to express their needs. And so perhaps all it might be is that I ask, mm-hmm. and perhaps people tend not to ask. I, I, I despair at the number of managers that read self-help books that tell them to do this and do that with the people in front of them when they've got the people in front of them and they can just ask them. This is my way of thinking about the world. It's consistent with the students. I say I don't tell the students what they need. I ask them what they need and then they make the choice. It's the same. I think it's good to ask. I, think, I don't think everyone always knows what they need. But I think it's very important that people learn what they need, and the only way they will is by being given a chance to choose. Mm, mm. Um, just you know, we live in interesting times, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, <laughs> you know, what, what's your hope for the kind of? I know this is kind of a big picture question, but like, on like for the world moving forward, because you know, it's a very kind of disruptive time in the world right now and and like I'm, I'm if I believe my job is to do anything it's going to promote humanity but kind of for you in this time what are your thoughts on kind of I know it's a bigger kind of kind of question but what's happening well, and, think, and where you want it to go all, all I can ask for and it's nice to be as young as I am in this respect because there's still time um is I think that what I'm trying to do and as an educationalist is prepare the next generation I think the generation that's in charge of us at the moment is a product of its education and a product of its upbringing. And if you look at the times that these men and women who are running our world at the moment were growing up, it was a very different time to the to the to the years that 
uh, that we've experienced growing up. And so, in a lot of ways, what 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 we can do is influence what comes next. And I think by and and the best way to do that, I think, is to is is in the ways that we are is to is to is to engage with people in positive ways is to is to act according to what we believe in. And and to and to question and challenge the things that we don't approve of is to is to use our voices as clearly and as loudly as we can, and to be committed to the things we believe in. And I think that that is the stuff that does create influence in the world. And it's gradual and it's slow, frustrating at times. Perhaps sometimes feels ineffective, but at the same time, it's the only thing that I can see that's ever going to be an antidote to the kind of populism that seems to be dominating internationally at the moment. And I think that populism is a, is a, is a substitute for the difficult good stuff. Mm. <laughs> and, I, and I think that, that you know, people only recognize the value of difficult good stuff through experience. And so we have to put people through difficult good experiences before they're actually going to recognize that that's the way to go. Because often the good decisions is a hard decision, mm. almost always, mm. and and that's that, that people can't just do that because they're told to. They have to know from their own life experience that that's the way to make choices, mm. and when they do, then they will make good choices in their lives, and 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 also influence each other well. So mm. I look at the students I teach. I look at men like you, who I've had input into in their lives, and I think, well. One of these people can take over. <laughs> and then I'll be happy. <laughs> just, just lastly, um, uh, this, you know, this seems to, like, it's interesting because I come from the kind of, I turn my life around and so I seem to get a lot of parents coming to me because a lot of young men are struggling. Um, you know, it seems to be, a, it's a really big thing. And maybe it's because I get that contact from parents because they see me as someone who's got through it. So maybe I get more of it because I'm a bit of a beacon because of my story and I'm open with my story. But it does seem to be this real struggle for young men from, you know, teenagers up to probably early 20s. Um, that's, that's a real concern. Uh, just, just your thoughts on that. I think the only, I mean, I've, I've long felt that the important thing, that, that, that the people who have the biggest role to play in this are us men. Mm. I think we've got a job to do here for others and that, the, that a lot of us have had a bit of a lack of influences from men around us that, that have been good for us. Whether and, and I'm not and I don't think it's reasonable to always place all the responsibility for the male influence on a child to be the father of the child. I I, I don't have children myself, but I've still had a lot of influence on young men, mm. and I think that all of us in the world, all the men in the world, need to be looking at ways that we can provide good input into younger men. They do need us. They need to live in a world where they can look at other men and say ah, oh, that's what it's like to be a man or that's what that man did with being a man. And, the, um, and, and that, that, that a lot of us are not really taking a lot of responsibility for that. I think it's up to us. And, and I'm glad that people are coming and talking to you about it because they are looking in the right direction if they're doing that because it is each of us that should be doing this. Mm. So I do think we need to step up. And I, think that, and I think that, to be honest, my experience in New Zealand is that a lot of women have been trying to do that job too much on their own for too long and they've been left to it by a lot of men and I'm I'm not happy with that. I think women are an absolutely necessary part of a man's life and a child's upbringing but not a sole part of their life and, mm. child and upbringing. 
it's not fair to place all of that responsibility into, onto women alone. I think, but all children need all adults, if that makes sense, mm. rather than thinking that it just falls to one or two people. So as adults in the world, as men in the world, I think we have a responsibility to step up. And that means engaging with young people, particularly if we're men, young men, in every opportunity we get. Actually, I mean, I first met you when you were a young man and yeah. you were in my aerobics class and I made the made the effort to make contact with you and spoke to you individually because of what you can see in a young person when they have needs. You know, mm. and it's not actually that hard you wouldn't find it hard to see in others. And each of us who has that ability to see that should act on that. It is actually our job, it's our responsibility. They don't have to be our children. Mm. The children aren't owned by anybody. They, they're, they're, just, they're, just, they're out there in the world, and if they need help, we can help. It does mean actually speaking to young men on the street, mm. <laughs> not being afraid of them. Mm. It is actually about stepping out and saying, look, this is a better way of doing this thing or offering something to someone. Mm. Mm. We yeah. can do that. It does make a difference. Yeah, well, well I, yeah, whereas you talk about, I reflect on my own experience, and, and definitely you and other men were a part of that. And, and it's, um, you know, and I suppose if we kind of recap back to some of the kind of insight you've shared with us today, this whole idea of it is about being vulnerable, it is about showing the real you. And, you know, look, look at what you talked about, how kids chose teachers. It was being honest to yourself and being honest to them about your life experience, isn't it? It's not trying to portray something you're not. And if you can have the courage to show that to a young man, then you're allowing him to have that himself, aren't you? Yeah, you are. I mean, it's that thing about offering a license, isn't it? Mm. And by, 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 by being these things ourselves and being open about ourselves, we're providing others with the license to do the same. Mm. And as a gay man, I mean, I, a lot of this, most of the students I teach are not gay, but they quite like that I am because it's something about me that they know makes me unique. It's, mm. it, it's something that they know makes me vulnerable. And it's something that it, it also offers these young people a chance to demonstrate grace. You know, you can get, I was working in London and I'm working with young African and Caribbean descent men come from very conservative backgrounds. Their parents would disapprove of their teacher being gay, yet they as individuals can make a choice to treat me with respect. And in doing so, they're experimenting with a version of themselves that they can develop for themselves. That mm. By being ourselves and making our vulnerabilities clear, it allows young people to, to develop who they are and make choices for themselves about how they respond to that. So it's not just about teaching them how to be, it's just allowing them to be mm. so that they can actually be those things in their own right and then learn about what that feels like from experience. And we need to provide them with that interface to have a chance to do that instead of just telling them what to do all the time. So I completely agree. It's actually just us presenting ourselves to them. Mm. And we know this, I know this from radio, you know that thing about if you've got a smile on your face, you sound happy. You've actually got to be smiling. Yeah, the, um, yeah. the, see it or not, and the and the and the and the fitness industry stuff. If you're going to stand up in front of a group of people and tell them you love them, you'd better bloody well love them because <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to go very well if you don't. You know, like, <laughs> Yeah. Hey, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure people who are listening to this have just got so much insight into this. Um, I don't think you're trying to have a presence on the internet or anything like that. I'm not quite sure if, if they want to follow you, they can go to your website. Do you... Yeah, I'm there. Edutronic.net is me. So, and, and I'll put a link to that on Bevan uh, James Isles. And uh, just thanks for your time, mate. I just I, I love the person you've been in my life and I love the work you do. I just have always stood on the sideline in these last few years and just been very proud of my friend and uh and you know what you're doing in your in your life so 
Love your work. Love you too. Righto, Tim, so that's pretty much today's episode. Hopefully you got a lot out of it. Um, it was kind of just a conversation. I just kind of sat down and I kind of asked a couple of questions and let him share some of his wisdom. And hopefully that through that conversation you got some really, some cool insight to think about maybe in your own life or like we were talking about at the end, you know, for some of the young men out there. And this is all really important stuff. And in today's world, you know, it, it does blow my mind the amount of young men who are kind of struggling out there. So... You know, just all of his kind of stuff. Hopefully, you get some really good value from that. I'll put a link to his website on the show notes for today's episode. So, if you want to go check out his website, I imagine it's more educational based than anything because that's what he's about. So, you can, if you are an educator or you know someone who's an educator, you may want to send, you know, you know, go have a look at the website or send them in his direction. Other than that, if you want to become a patron of the show, go to bevanjamesisles.com. It's all pretty obvious once you go to the website. And outside of that, that's pretty much it, guys. I'm just going to wrap it up because it's been a longer show today. I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. I'll be doing a Bev show, but I'm up in Auckland right now doing some work, so I may even try to line up a couple of cool interviews while I'm up here. Anyway, I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks' time.